Here at Educas, we continue to provide a comprehensive package of support to aid you in the delivery of our geography qualifications, including expert advice and guidance from our subject specialists to support your teaching and free resources to be used in the classroom or for blended learning. We're here to support you. Hello and welcome to JogPod. Today, it gives me great pleasure to be joined by Dr. Margaret Byron, uh, Associate Professor in Human Geography at the University of Leicester. Margaret, you joined the Department of Geography in 2009, following a lectureship in the Department of Geography at King's College, London. And that was from 1993 to 2009. Yeah. Uh, You've done an ESRC Research Fellowship at the, Ge the School of Geography at the University of Oxford. And you've won several awards as well. You're the winner of the University of Leicester Discovering Excellence Student Experience Award. That was 2018. And in 2016, you received the Taylor and Francis Award for promoting diversity in the teaching of human geography. So we've got a treat in store. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yes, it's, it's lovely to be here, John. And I, I, consider, it, I consider it an honour to be able to contribute to the Geographical Association JogPod series. Just wanted to add a couple of points in, to that introduction, to, not to add, but to focus for a moment on. One was that the, the Taylor and Francis Award was made by the Royal Geographical Society, IBG. Um, and so it was a national recognition of work which focuses on recognizing, celebrating, and working with, recognizing in the sense of a practical recognition of the diversity of the geographical community now in universities, particularly at the level of the students. Um, and also to mention that my, my ESRC fellowship was working with Professor Kerry Peach, who very sadly passed away in 2018. And one of the things that I remember very fondly is Kerry was my PhD supervisor as well. And then I, I worked with him. And Kerry was one of the earliest academics who focused on post-war migration from the Caribbean to Britain. So it was for me a big deal, you know, to get to work with him on the Caribbean. Um, migration, the Caribbean population in Britain. And I got this handwritten little note, very enthusiastic handwritten little note in 2016, congratulating me on the Taylor and Francis Award. He used to keep a close awareness of what was happening in the Royal Geographical Society and in British geography as a whole. And he was so happy. He seemed happier than me. And <laughs> But um, he was an enormous inspiration to me as a superb supervisor, a PhD supervisor who gave you the latitude that you needed to do, basically do what you wanted, as long as it was up to standard and would, you know, get through the examiners. So I'd, I'd like to say how much he has helped, the, the, the contributed to the study of Caribbean migration, post-war migrations more generally. He was very much a positivist. He, he, um, he, he believed, you know, if once you had the statistics, you could, you could show patterns and you could describe processes. He was less of a qualitative geographer. 
So um, I always thought, well, there's Kerry doing the statistics and providing the pattern and then I explain it. <laughs> so yeah, that, just to mention that, because he still is very, very important in my life. Do you think his, his view, his statistical view, was um, more a reflection of the time uh, in the geography community? Largely. And of course, the, the School of Geography at Oxford, where I did my PhD, um, was linked to the Department of Anthropology. But I think for them, a lot of the time, they sort of thought, you know, the anthropologists do the, the human stuff and we do the, we deal with the stats. Although they were, they were qualitative geographers within the department at that point. But of course, David Harvey was actually in the department for quite a lot of the time that I was there. And there was the clash of the structuralists with the positivists as well. So, you know, the empiricists and the much more structural geographers were what was already happening by the time at the end of the 80s, of course, it had happened for some time by then. So he was he was really early on and he was fascinated by this incoming post-war migration and the obsession by the British state with um, with ending it, with imposing the Commonwealth Immigrants Act, and his argument was no, these flows are monic- these flows are sh- shaped and controlled by demand for labour. I wanted to ask you because that was that was a part of history that I didn't know an awful lot about, to be fair. And I, I studied A level geography, A level history, economics, so I did that sort of package where I would have expected to have have learnt about that migration. We never touched upon it. But there was a, a pre-war migration as well, wasn't there? Well, there was, a, I suppose, there was an ongoing low-level migration between Britain and the Caribbean and African colonies for a long time because, because Britain was, you know, it was the colonial power. So education came from Britain, because particularly in the Caribbean, where societies had been literally artificially constructed by, by, as a slave society, and there were the, the planters and the planter class, the planter cohort, were relatively small relative to the slave populations. And any indigenous societies who had been met present in the Caribbean when, when the British and the French and the Dutch and the Spanish and so arrived in the islands were, were, were wiped out largely. Very small remnants remain. St. Kitts and Nevis, where I grew up, didn't have any indigenous people. So the population were black slaves and then ex-slaves, emancipated, kind of in emancipated slaves. The elites would go. The elites were largely the white population, the planter class. Their children would go to Britain to be educated and normally stay on there. And then over time, you had different elements of the society as the black population gradually attained positions, teachers, more senior people in the society. They would occasionally, they were beginning, the British were beginning to train, to train in inverted commas, a Caribbean civil service. And members of that civil service would go away to study. So, for example, I had uncles who came to Britain in the 90, early 1940s 
to take positions like probation officer. So they would, they would go and do a six month or a one year probation officer course in, one of them came to Cambridge actually. Um, so people were coming for education largely in that period. And indeed, um, John, John Killingray wrote about Africans in Britain and his in, in the 1990s. And his book, his collection of essays um, was of, was a collection of authors who wrote about um, the African population of the United Kingdom all the way back from 1812, right through to the middle of the 20th century. And largely people who came to study, there were also seamen who came to Britain. So there were small Caribbean and mixed populations in cities like Cardiff and Liverpool who came as members of a seamen um, cohort and who stayed, who stayed on, not always, some would settle for a while and then become merchant seamen again, but they tended to marry local Liverpudlian or local Welsh women. So you, you had a, a mixed dynamic um, ethnic community, dyna dynamic ethnic minority community in the port areas of those cities mm -hmm. long before major Caribbean communities developed in the post-war era in cities such as London and Bristol and, and um, Birmingham, for example. Those were much older communities and fascinatingly mixed because they... they they, they were part, the Caribbean members of those communities were part of African migrants, um, Norwegian migrants, Somalian migrants from also from Africa, but communities who were very much seafaring communities, Portuguese people were there. And that Cardiff was a fascinating um, society because it had migrants due to the arrival of seamen because of the coal industry and the coal transportation industry there. So the economic element is fascinating, but also the social element and how that social element translated into a cultural community which accepted diversity and difference. Would, would that be Shirley Bassey's heritage then? Absolutely, yeah. it was Shirley Bassey's heritage. Yeah, That's absolutely. She came from a large family. Um, the father, I think, was West African. And her mom may have been Welsh, but I, I would need to look up the details. But absolutely, Shirley Bassey was from that part of Cardiff. Yeah. And that pre-war. Uh, that pre-war arrival. Really, and yeah, some fascinating. Yeah. And many in Cardiff, it was very often the case that they came as seamen. Um, and, you know, sometimes would, would create a community from that. So in Liverpool, I think it was Liverpool where you had a crew community from KRU community from Ghana. And they, they were, they were um, seamen who came and then gradually and social network meant that their friends and relatives came. And you actually had a little community of people from that particular part of the West African community. So yeah, um, there was there was migration, but it was small. It was often for education or through through industries, coastal industries such as such as 
existed in Cardiff or in Liverpool. And of course, Liverpool was very connect heavily connected with the slave trade. So you would have had very early arrivals who would have sometimes arrived as ex-slaves or even as slaves and then attained their freedom within Britain. Would that have occurred with Bristol too? Very much with Bristol. Mm. And there's evidence of that. They're, they're wonderful. Um, for me, going to Bristol is both distressing and also fascinating from a historical point of view because the, a, a very popular, wealthy family in Bristol was the Pinney family, P-I-N-N-E-Y. And um, they owned, they bought a massive estate in the island of Nevis in the Caribbean. And all their slaves, most of their slaves were called Pinney because they gave, they bestowed, dumped, um, destroyed the names of the slaves who came from Africa, destroyed all mm. remnants of their, their names and named them the English names. So I grew up with neighbors who were called Pinney. One of my cousins married a Pinney. And interestingly, all of that, most of that family of young people migrated to Leicester in the post-war era. So there's this massive Pinney connection here in the city of Leicester. But in Bristol, you can still see the wealth created in the Caribbean by the Pinney family and their, their estates and their huge homes and, and businesses. But fascinatingly, in the middle of the city, there's a modern metal bridge that goes across the port area, the, 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 um, the river right in the city center. And it's called Perros Bridge. And there's a nice um, plaque at the edge of the bridge that explains to you that Perro was a slave who was brought from the island of Nevis in the early 19th century, I think. I don't think it was the 18th. I mean, it was somewhere around there. Anyway, he must have been brought by the Pinney family back to Bristol. And of course, once he became, he was in Britain, he, was, he could no longer be a slave. So he became a free man, a free black man in Bristol. He married a Bristolian woman and they had several children. And it's sort of the, the bridges dedicated to this man who was one of the early recorded black people who, who were in the city. But there must have been several such people. But for me, it means a lot because Perro was from the island I was born in and grew up in. The, family, the name Pinny is so... Um, so much a part of the, the island life back in the Caribbean. But also, the Pinney estate is enormous. I mean, it, it's a significant section of the island. And the idea that, that that was just owned by people who came to the island and were allocated this, this, this enormous piece of land, you know. And the irony is it's still in the hands of expatriate white people. You know, they were all that, that that exchange of land very often continues to occur within a wealthier element of global society, you know? Yes. Yes, we talked about that on one or two of the other podcasts too, this um, this distribution that still exists. Let's let's have a look at the, the vast majority of the migration from the Caribbean, because that took place after the war, didn't it? Um and, yes. and I think for a lot of people, 
learning about the Windrush generation is, is something that they wouldn't have heard about perhaps two years ago. I think this is for a lot of people that when that hit the news, that would be the first time that they started to think something was happening here. It certainly wasn't in any of my teaching. I didn't learn anything about it until until it started to get onto the news. So what was going on? Why, why was there an influx at the time? And then what were the experiences of these migrants in this wave? Because this was a much bigger one than the hmm. one pre-war. Um, people often say, well, what were the triggers at that point? And the, the bigger picture is quite important. Um, when emancipation occurred in the 1840s, some of the estates, some of the islands, like Barbados, like St. Kitts, for example, were very, very profitable um, plantations. The islands were ideal, ideal in inverted commas, were seen as ideal sugar islands. The, the, the canes grew very well there. And after emancipation, people pretty much remained for a while on the plantations. But in some of the smaller islands, slaves thought well, ex-slaves thought, well, there's no way we are going to continue to work for these people who have been our captors, as it were, for all this time. So how did you leave? Because it, you were on islands. Mm. So, but, but literally, remember that this population, although by then several generations old, you know, had, had been brought against their will to these islands. So... I guess th there wasn't a connection, a loving connection with the land and with the soil and with, there was in a way the opposite. So migration wasn't that difficult to adopt as a way out. So early migrations, very early migrations were ironically to other islands within the region. So the islands that I grew up in, generations older, very often if people were successful, they had a shop and they built a house above the shop, beautiful um, upstairs, which had a nice veranda, very colonial designs. Those were people who had money. Now, how did they get money? Well, they'd been away. You'd been away. And away in those days meant going to more successful plantation economies. The Dominican Republic was very important. Cuba was very important. These were later developing, very often Spanish um, colonized territories. And Cuba, Dominican Republic, some of Jamaica, but not much. And then later on, Islanders, Barbadians, for example, migrated out and went to contribute to the Panama Canal um, construction. So migration rapidly became a way of life. It became a way of improving your lot. It usually involved an intention of return, but the return needed to be a, prof a, a, a successful return. And there was an image, an image developed of, it was a symbol, a symbol of a successful return. You return with money in your pockets and nice clothes and yeah. So migration was a thing long before the post-war migration to Britain. All right. How was the communication done then between the migrants and the people who stayed behind? By, it, by, letter, and, by letter and you'd come back. So the Panama men were known in Barbados and in St. Lucia and St. Vincent. Panama man come home and he have on nice clothes and he walks around looking 
powerful, you know, and, and, you know, girls want to chat him out because he will give them a bit of money or maybe even marry them, you hope anyway, and so on. And it was like that. And then what I found fascinating, because the Dominican Republic migration was not that far away from the migration to Britain. So I met people in Britain whose parents had migrated to the Dominican Republic. And so that, that migration had become a fundamental part of the culture. The other made movements I looked at were movements up the eastern coast of the USA. So first of all, people went to Florida. Florida is interesting. Florida was part of an organized recruited migration to, to harvest fruit. Huh. There was some sugarcane, but it was more fruit. So you harvested oranges and bananas and so any things that would, that would grow in Florida. There was a labor shortage, and that was a, a, an arrangement set up with the United States. It wasn't a lot. Sometimes 100 would go a year, but they went, and the Americans were absolutely determined that they would come back within three years because they did not want them getting permanent residence. So they were always sending them. It was a circular migration. And over time, some would go even up to Canada on that sort of scheme. And what was fascinating was that they, 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 the steamers that took them would travel to, um, the steamers that took them would um, stop in Bermuda, where the British were building a, a dock, a dry dock, an enormous dock. They would um, settle there. So you had a St. Kitts Nevis population in the, the, the Bermuda. They never made it to the States. And so that population was well known and would come home occasionally. So yeah, it was what happened in 1952 was the Walter McCarran Act. And there was a real restriction on Caribbean people entering the United States. So there was a barrier put up. And um, at that point, Caribbean people who were by then migrating as a way of life, literally, you either had a higher education and you became a teacher or whatever in society, or you migrated. Those were the two ways to progress. Mm -hmm. And of course, from the 1948 British Nationality Act, people in the Caribbean, whereas they had, they were as colonial subjects, they could come to Britain. In 1948, the British Nationality Act put in writing that people had access. They were, they were citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies. So they had full access to migrate to Britain and did. Hmm. Um, what really triggered it was the, the wartime participation of Caribbean people in the, in the um, British armed forces, be it in the Navy, the army, many came, to support the British war effort during World War II and were very much, very much welcomed as, as, as staff within, for the war effort. Hundreds and hundreds of men came to do that. What then happened was that at the end of the war, many were demobbed. Some were not fully demobbed, some got leave and had the opportunity to return to islands like Jamaica, Barbados. And in 1948, the, the, the ship, the Empire Windrush, pulled in at Jamaica. It, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. It was, a, it was an 
financial strategy by the boat's captain that having, it was a ship that came from, I think it went, the Windrush left Britain to go to Australia to pick up men who had not been demobbed and wanted to come back to Britain, but you have to fill the ship basically, to make the, the, the trip worthwhile. So they stopped. I think they stopped in... They must have come through the Panama Canal because they had Mexicans on board. They crossed the Pacific, so came through the Panama Canal into the Caribbean, and they had been asked to stop at Jamaica to pick up some not-yet-demobbed military men. And the ship's captain... They were in the Caribbean for some time. The ship's captain put out an advert in the local newspapers offering passages to Britain. So many men who had come back home, who'd been unable to get work were, and who were demobbed, decided that it might be worth it. They'd seen jobs available in Britain. They'd seen how London had been destroyed in the, in the Blitz. They, they knew that there was work available to reconstruct Britain. So they came to try to see what was available. They weren't invited at that point, in, inv in inverted commas, at that point. But they thought, and, and in fact, there was a lot of concern shown as the Empire Windrush neared Britain by the fact that this was a boat that was coming in with more than 400 Caribbean men and women, some women, looking for an opportunity to work. You know, that was the agenda. So it was linked to the, the, um, the military association um, initially. But of course, once, once the, the relationship was established with Britain as a migration destination, that, and more, they'd write to their relatives and they'd say, you know, we, there's opportunities here, there's work, there's, there's hope. They didn't say that how cold it was, how hostile the public were to them. They just said, you know, it's, it's, it's worth coming. And then, of course, people in the Caribbean started to see Britain as an opportunity to get a better life. And they all assumed that it would be, the, the, the migration would be relatively short term. Mm. So they, they all said, we used to say five years. What was their reception like? How, was it did they feel uh, quite a lot of discrimination when they first arrived in small numbers? Well, the very first arrival was was met. I mean, the 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 home office, the the um, it was linked to the military as well. But they felt that these men were coming; they had to provide them with an initial place to stay. So, at I think it was the, the Clapham shelter. The Clapham bomb shelter was was cleaned up, and 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 um, put up beds were established. And these men spent the first few months living in the Clapham bomb shelter, and this was overseen by by um, the state. So it was you know they were provided for, and there was a there was an anxiety. These men are coming. What are they going to do? What we've got all these young black men in 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 an area that. It is largely white, you know, what, 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 how are we going to deal with this? And it was, there was this myth that, that, you know, there were already existing myths about the black man. And of course, they were also colonial subjects. They also had the right to be here. They also had, came in with British passports. Hmm. 
you know, so it was, it was very, and, and meanwhile, if you look at the, the sort of parliamentary papers of the 1948, 1949, there were extremely hostile things being written. And the agenda was to stop this, to, 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 to stop the income, incoming flow of oh, black men. Nice. And then they said, well, possibly, possibly we could have a few of the women. Possibly we could, uh, you know, there are some shortages in the NHS, but possibly we could see if we can let some of the women in and be nurses, but definitely not. And no enthusiasm whatsoever for the immigration of black Caribbean men. And yet the black Caribbean men had been here, had served in the armed forces, had, had served the country and felt, look, there's lots of work we can do because there's jobs in the, in the transport system, there's jobs in the health service, and there's, there's jobs in the factories. There was no multicultural vision then, really, at well, all? No, not, for, not for a long time, really? definitely not. And there was huge suspicion and there was massive racism. I mean, you, you must have read about the advertisements that used to be up in windows where room was to let no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. No Irish, yes. And no dogs. And, and you just knew. And the seeing of that, and then they'd ring up, they'd ring up for a, you know, from a phone box for a room that was advertised. And the minute they heard a Caribbean accent, they'd say, oh, no, it's gone. You know, and of course, in typical English form, it was very, it was very, oh, 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 it's just gone. Chaps just taken it, and then sometimes guys would get somebody to ring for them. And, you know, the job, the room would be there, they'd say, come on round, and they'd turn up, and as soon as they saw them, they said, oh, no, it's just, we've just let that room. Mm. You know, so it was, it was very, very difficult. And it was difficult for a long time. Eventually, you had slum landlords who saw a way, like Rackman in Notting Hill, who saw a way to make money of this vulnerable category of, of immigrants. They were vulnerable because they were racialized as being black and nothing else. And therefore, you know, they'd, they'd charge them much more for a room, the equivalent room that would be charged less if you were a white couple and or a white person looking for a room. And they, they had to make do with the most awful properties. You got a room. So you, then you, you, maybe your wife or your girlfriend came to you and you settled down in that room. You know, those rooms mm. used to burn down because they used paraffin heaters that were that were unsafe. You know, I had friends in Leeds who lost their first child because the, the, the room burnt down, you know. And it was it was really horrendous housing housing accommodation situation for a long time. But people people lived through it. They were an extremely strong patient community because they continued to work. And they continued to save their money. And then eventually, they were in a position to buy a little house, often in quite derelict districts. But they were able to let rooms out to their own people then. And then gradually, you could occupy, as you got better off, you could stop letting as many rooms. And, you know, but you, you had lodgers pretty much until you moved out. And then there was a suburbanization of those groups, you know. Would they do that within the context of their of their group? Some ethnic groups stay together because of cultural support, um, uh, but the way you described that, they were forced into certain areas because those were the only ones where they could they could rent rooms to begin with. Did Absolutely. That, did that but grouping stay together even as as they moved and were able to buy properties? I think the two forces were there. So there was the there were three things that led to, to groups living 
in one known area, an area becoming known as, say, Brixton, becoming known as where the Caribbean community settled. Um, one was that was the only place they could get lodging. Number two was chain migration, where people migrated to near people who were already there. So you migrated to your neighbors or your relatives or, or, or your friends. And also, once they bought houses, they could let to their own people and instinctively people let to people who they know and trust. Um, but there was also the fact that there was a tendency for the white population in the area to leave because, again, because of racism and distrust. So mm. segregation can't just, segregation tends to be blamed on the group who becomes the, minority, the majority in that area. Segregation is blamed on the Caribbean population or the Bangladeshi population or the Pakistani population. Segregation is never blamed on the people who leave. But segregation is as much caused by those who leave as it is by those who arrive. Yeah. Um, so there was that. So you had people leaving and hence people becoming much more concentrated and segregated in particular areas. And invariably in the poorest areas of cities such as Bristol, such as Bristol has St. Paul's, which was a district that was very much um, stigmatized, you know, and associated with 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 categories that were not, were not were not fair you know you had very hard working often um communities who had become stigmatized um by by a wider racist society really mm, that's interesting you, you said there were contradictions as well in the, in the in the policy in the colonial immigration policy as it went through the 50s so there were contradictions and and difficulties for the for the immigrant group well <laughs> I think the contradictions were in British society because yes, these people were British Sorry, yeah. citizens but were also rejected by the society that they thought was theirs, by the, you know, by the, the country, the nation that they thought was theirs. Um, the irony was that in the 50s, from the late 40s to the mid-50s, there's a real emphasis on recruiting there's a there's an emphasis on recruiting migrant labor so when this recent windrush crisis happened um windrush scandal happened not crisis it was a crisis but it was also a scandal um that people would say again and again we were invited here we were invited here to help rebuild britain that invitation argument was very much associated with um the recruitment of labor during Enoch Powell's time as transport. I think he was, I don't know if he was Labour Minister or Transport Minister, momentarily it's gone from me, but there was a big recruitment for, of nurses and of transport workers in the island of Barbados in particular, but there was some recruitment in Jamaica as well. But, those were, but around that, all you need is for some recruitment. I used to know the exact number of people who was recruited from Barbados. I think at most it was about four to 6,000 people. But of course, around that was a real, um, the, 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 the momentum for migration had been generated. So hundreds of thousands of people migrated from the Caribbean to Britain. Up, you know, until the mid 70s, probably 300,000 had come. But a small, small proportion of that was actually part of the recruitment process. It's very different to countries like France and countries like Germany, where the majority of post-war migration was through recruitment. 
Whereas we, the recruitment from the Caribbean, most of it was voluntary migration. These were people with British citizenship. They could just get on a boat and come. But the trigger and the, the, the encouragement was that migration that was, was it, but that migration, the contradiction was that while this migration happened under Powell, the truth was that in the 40s, if you read parliamentary papers, the, mem the MPs were saying, look, we really have to be very careful about letting these people into Britain. Mm. You know, so there were all of these different messages going around and that they would always blame it on the public. The public would not be happy with this, that this would be against public public desires. So the other interesting thing was in London, you had the transport, London transport being staffed significantly by immigrant workers from the Caribbean. Um, not entirely by any means, but significantly. And you, in Bristol, you had the Bristol bus company refusing to employ black people at all. So there was a massive Bristol bus boycott in the early 1960s, 1963, I think it was where they wouldn't employ black people. And they, they quickly said, the management quickly said, no, if a white bloke, good, decent white driver comes along and he sees me employing black men, he'll never, they'll not take the job. So we lose our standard of workers. So it was always blamed on what would the society think? Society wouldn't be happy. The MPs were racist, but they weren't ever prepared to admit their racism. They blamed it on British society. How, would, what, how can we expect society to accept that? But what they were doing was instead of creating a welcoming, you know, a welcoming, um, generous, a welcoming society, given the colonial experience that they'd put the origins of these Caribbean through, given the wealth that Britain had acquired as a result of, of, of occupying Caribbean territories for centuries. They instead, I mean, with revulsion said, oh, no, no, we don't want these people here. So it was, you know, it, it, it's, it's quite ludicrous, really, that that, that, that was the, the, the welcome that, well, the lack of welcome that Caribbean people experienced. But they're strong, you know, those communities are very strong and they're very, they were patient and they, what they had was goals. They knew they wanted a better life. They knew they wanted their children to be raised to hopefully have better experience than they'd had, etc. To some extent that was achieved. I mean, and we also know that to a large extent, it wasn't achieved. When I was younger, and I was brought up in Teesside, it, I, I don't think there was, to my knowledge anyway, an Afro-Caribbean presence there. And I, I didn't learn anything about it at all, to be fair. It's not until much later on, and the, the idea of the Notting Hill Carnival and the celebration of people here who've come from the Afro-Caribbean states is, is, um, is something that I, I, I don't think I, I experienced at all as a as a youngster before I went to university. It was the, 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 the community settled in particular urban areas and Teesside was not one, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the, the majority ended up, ended up living in London and Birmingham became, and the West Midlands became the next, mm. it became the next major Caribbean settlement area. And of course, within cities, within Birmingham, certain areas, areas like Hansworth became um, very much a Caribbean settlement area. Initially, that of course, that of course moved on. 
Was there a difference between the, the sorts of jobs that they did? So were, was it largely services in the London area and manufacturing? In the in London areas, area, it was largely services, but it was also manufacturing because around London, there were also manufacturing districts, but much more services, NHS, transport, London area. Mm. But there were others as well. Coming out of London, there, were, there was Birmingham, which had big manufacturing sector and some transport. And then you went up to Manchester, Leeds, very much manufacturing. Manchester, many people worked in the mills and settled there, so, uh, and, and along the coast. So Ipswich was, was quite a Caribbean settlement area. Yeah, so the major, the major um, manufacturing districts, the major, so there was manufacturing, and as I say, in London, much more, much more service. I suppose then the, um... The decline in the 70s of manufacturing because it hit those communities harder than in the north and perhaps in Ipswich rather than in London. Or am I wrong? Did it make a difference? What I thought was interesting was how people were flexible. So um, most Leicester, for example, which, which is where I did my study, when I came to start my work in the late 1980s, People, my research, people were still employed in manufacturing, but they had shifted. So all Caribbean men initially worked, I say all, 90% of them worked in the engineering. So they, they will tell you, you know, it was in the engineering and it was heavy. Leicester was heavy engineering. The women worked in the hosiery. So they made socks and tops and stuff in the hosiery industry. And that was, that was what one did. By the time I came in the 1980s, the engineering was in decline, and, but people were still working in factory sectors. Many people had shifted. Walker's Crisps had their biggest factory in the country in Leicester. So, so many of the Caribbean men were now working in Walker's Crisp. But what I was also observing was Caribbean men ending up as security men and shifting into other sectors. I suppose security would be a service element of the service sector, and they were moving in. Some, it was very early days of people becoming hospital porters, et cetera. But there was, so there was a shift. There was very little unemployment when I came to research in Leicester, but people had moved. I, I had friends in Manchester who moved from the tailoring sector, so working in Burton's for decades, had moved into cleaning the university. So there were women who had become part of the university cleaners workforce. You know, so gradually shifting into services. I, I want to ask you a little bit. I don't want to go too far into this, but I know you've done a study with a, with a colleague of yours looking at um, the comparisons between people moving into France and people moving into Britain, both colonial powers. Um, and there were some similarities, but differences too. I wondered why they came about and what did, what did you found when you did that comparative study? Well, initially you would think, well, there were colonial powers in the Caribbean, migration happened in quite a similar way. You know, people, people, people had that route because they had those passports. They were um, similar, but we always stress that context, what it proved to us was that context was very important. So when people came into France, while housing was initially a little bit diff difficult, the state was much quicker to house the population migrating in from the Caribbean. 
So they got Ashalem. Ashalem was high-rise, effectively high-rise um, suburban high-rise buildings, and they'd get a flat in such a high-rise building. Caribbean people often had to be in Britain for 10 years before they had access to council houses. So there was, a, there was a responsibility taken by the French state for French people who were migrating from the Caribbean because what the French didn't want was the Caribbean people being established as anything different to anybody else in France. So the assimilation agenda was very strong and that impacted on the experience that people had. It wasn't necessarily a brilliant experience. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen an actual high-rise flat, but it was very... It wasn't ideal accommodation, but it was far of a far higher quality than what the, in general, what the British got. They didn't always get it immediately. They often, if they worked in an inner city area, they wanted to stay in an inner city area in Paris. And the, the accommodation was very expensive, very small and not very nice. So people eventually agreed to move out to Saint-Denis or, you know, to, 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 to suburban, suburban areas where there was accommodation, but they had to travel a long way to get to work. So there's a kind of segregation there, too. Um, in, there, there was sim- it was a similar period. There was a similar shortage of work in the Caribbean. So there were similar links. But Britain, Britain very quickly moved to stop stem the flow. And France in a way did the opposite because they incorporated their colony, Caribbean colonies as parts of France. So the Caribbean colonies became département d'outre-mer, which meant that they were overseas parts of France. And that's remained the case till today. And nobody, nobody in the French state will hear of you discussing the, the Caribbean at the Antillean population. They don't like it. They don't like you to discuss that. The Antillean population have experienced discrimination are very aware that they're not equal in France. But what the, it's the ways in which they express that. So I remember sitting in Les Halles in Paris and watching these young black people with, with, with hoodies on, which said, I think it was 971 and 972. And I was sort of thinking, what's with this 971? And then I looked it up and it was a postcode for Guadeloupe and Martinique. Oh, right. Yeah. And it was like, we are us. We are different. But of course, within the French assimilation ideology, that is not recognized. That is not, that symbol is not acceptable. So there was all this, there was conflict, but it was subtle and it was often unspoken, you know, but it, yeah. Whereas, yeah, so the experiences are similar, but different. But the key thing is, they've always been told in France that they're French. And of course, that becomes even more hurtful when you are suddenly you suddenly realize it's not quite like that. That people from Saint Denis and the suburb, the, the banlieue, they don't get jobs in the same way. They don't get into the same universities. They're not respected in the same way. I have I know people mm. who ask other people to be their address in order to put on a job application because if you come from the banlieue, you're just you're classified as less than. You know, mm. so much for, for egality and fraternity. But um, in Britain, so there, there, are, there, are lot of, there are a lot of parallels, but there were also differences. There's a, there's a guarantee of being part of. The, the, the thing that happened to Caribbean people's children who came here at anywhere between six months and 12, 15 years, who were suddenly told you're not British, that couldn't happen in France. It still right. couldn't happen in France because you're still French, even today, if you're born in Guadeloupe or Martinique. 
I was going to ask you about cultural otherness. I'm not sure if this is the, the lead into it, but what's, what does it mean? What's, what, what are we talking about with cultural otherness? I find it, I find it a strange term, but I, I suppose, because, you know, it's not a term that I would ever use. I think I must have picked it up when I was reading some research into what you've been writing. And I, I found that yeah. and I thought, well, I'll ask you. I, I don't know whether people feel that. You've, you've said that the, the French were, on the face of it, more assimilated, but not really. But assimilation that- was not necessarily what they wanted. They wanted to have, I suppose they wanted their origins and their histories known and respected. Right. You know, and the French were saying, no, under assimilation, we are just French. There's nothing more to us than Frenchness. And they, they said, number one, that's ridiculous. But number two, you don't treat us as equals in effect. You know, let, us, let, us re- let our existence here also reflect our origins and our histories and, you know, what happened to our forefathers. And that, that is what the French find difficult to talk about. But we do too here in Britain. Um, I think in Britain, the assimilation agenda was A, never as strong, and, and graduate was, was, there was always a difference. The, the, you know, the emphasis on difference was much more apart. It was not until the, the 90, late 1970s, early 80s that a multicultural agenda was actually expressed explicitly in the British context, but that multicultural agenda was never adopted in the French context. So culturally, it wasn't so much that that multiculturalism spoke of there was them and us, it was we are of many, we have a society that respects people of all origins. In reality, that it was a bit of a myth. And I, I find today that the idea of multiculturalism, the use of the term multiculturalism is problematic in that it covers over use of the word race and, and, and it particularly covers over the racism that is part, part of our everyday life. Mm. And I think as geographers, we need to speak out about that and to be aware of using multiculture when we're not actually ac- acknowledging how much difference there is. Multiculture is a nice sounding thing, it, it, but it, it doesn't always acknowledge the injustices and the lack of parity that exists in, in society for many people. So I say, by all means, um, acknowledge the differences that are here and the, the many cultures that are present, but don't, don't do act, also acknowledge that in people make assumptions that certain people are not part of the, the, the ruling, the powerful class. People make assumptions about who does what and where. You know, I, I'll go to events with a friend and the friend will be addressed even at the point of speaking to the, the receptionists in hotels, in institutes in my own university. I'll walk in with a white friend and I'll say, we're, you know, we're looking for this particular seminar. And the receptionist will address my friend back instead of addressing me you know and they'll show they'll meet my friend's eyes and they'll direct us in a particular way and they won't speak to me that's depressing to hear that (laughs) yeah so i mean it it happens and i think 
multicultural, and aren't we all multicultural? It kind of it it ignores that reality that is simultaneously there. What would your advice be for teachers? Because they're the ones who've got young people and and geography teachers are looking to address this. Um, What would be your key messages for them? I think for teachers to, from day one, emphasise the the richness of society and not set, not make assumptions, not assume that when you draw a picture, you, you draw a white person. Or when you tell a story, you use the name or you use Mary or Sam or, you know, when there's also Pepe and, 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 and you know, and Olorunda in the class. That you, you know, you, you, you recognize the diversity that society presents and you, you, you respect and, and include all those, all those elements. You know, that's certainly, I teach, I teach at the university level, but I, I try to embrace all my students. You know, I had a wonderful white British young person this year who, who did a study on food banks. And I was, I'm so proud of her and, and where she got to with it. She started from a very sort of naive start and, and she's grown and she's, 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 it's been it's been um, miraculous to see the the way in which she took off and achieved, but I I also have other students in that group who have achieved in a similar way and are are African in origin, are Nigerian in origin. Actually, there there are two. One one is West East African in origin. She was. Ugandan and the other was Nigerian so and they they bring their realities to the course and to the I often say to them they say oh we do so and so for dissertation I said but do you really care about that thing what what would you really like to do and then they tell you a bit about themselves so one of my students this year looked at black makeup the black make the makeup industry and the exclusion of black peoples from the makeup industry so that when you go to buy makeup it's all for essentially white people and it doesn't work on your skin or you know, and she, they've talked about that and they've talked about how representation of different people in society is not equal. You know, there's not, some people just don't find themselves in shops or in bookshops or in the classroom. The stories are not about them. So I think I'd say to, say to teachers, let everyone tell their story and, and, and make those stories part of the picture, make them central part of Everybody can be in the centre at some point. It is very essentially white still, though, geography, isn't it? If you look at the, if you look at the faces in, um, in the, a conference, when we can have them again, <laughs> the GA conference, for instance, it's essentially white faces. It's the, still a white subject, I think. I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. But we're, we're changing that slowly. The Royal Geographical Society race group has, was formed to challenge that reality. And amongst the student body, I don't know if you've heard of Black Geographers, mm. but Black Geographers has, has grown from a very small beginning to become, become a, an all-encompassing group, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's growing still. And, it, and, and these are students who are 
saying, you know, when we, when we first arrived at such and such a university, there were no other black people and we had to reach out and try and find other black people and tell our story. And we were so overwhelmed by the willingness of black young people across universities to join up. And they now have a voice through that, that group. You know, social media has helped a lot. And you said, what would you say to teachers? I'd say to teachers to talk about that group and to recognize that group and to let this students in school know that at university, there are groups called black geographers. And it just makes those students feel, maybe geography does include us after all. You know, we do get a growing number of, of minority students, not just black students, students from South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh origins. I mean, they're, they're born and brought up in, in Britain. You know, they're British young people, but they have a variety of origins. And I think increasingly the, the, the discipline is, is, is becoming more diverse, but it's slow. And as you say, at the level of the geography teachers, at the level of the geography educators, and at the level of the university staff in geography, it's still a very white place, but mm. not forever. You sound like you're optimistic for the future then. You have to be. You, you, you have to be. But you do realise it's not easy and you realise that it's an, ongoing, it's an ongoing engagement. Sometimes it's a struggle. It's often a struggle. And sometimes it's a battle. But I think you get more, you get more confident. I speak more confidently now than I would have five, ten years ago, you know. And I think what gives me confidence is the knowledge that they're my colleagues in the race group, my friends, my supporters in the Royal Geographical Race Group, but Society Race Group, and that there are groups such as Black Geographers who are prepared to stand up and say, we, are, we, we count, we have contributions to make, we do really interesting stuff. And we are succeeding despite the odds. Because when you're black and you're a student, you have to, people assume that you're, you're not up to standard. So you come in, you have to come in fighting, you have to hit the ground running, because if not, they, people will accept that you're not up to it much more easily than they will accept that you can be the best. That's really quite distressing to hear. But I can, <laughs> I can quite well understand it. And, and as soon as you start to try and put forward a history that's not within the understanding of some of the people who see things as well as the way they do, then you're rewriting history. And it isn't rewriting history, it's just... Filling it in. <laughs> because history has always been written, you know, and who, usually it's a powerful... And in this country, certainly, the powerful have always been a certain sector of white society, by no means the whole of white society. And the irony is, a lot of the people will say you're rewriting. So you've got the elites saying you're rewriting history, but you've also got people who are controlled by the elites saying you're rewriting our history, you know, without, yeah. So that, it's, it's, it's difficult, but we, we will continue to fill in the gaps, the big gaps. Yes, and I, and I think you're, you're doing a, a really good job with it. To end, you know, I would like to say that Caribbean migrants have contributed to British society so substantially, both in terms of the labour force and the contributions they made to the National Health Service, to the transport system, to... to um, 
building the British economy, but also through contributing to our cultural mm-hmm. reality and our, you know, our, our, uh, you know, our, our arts. And I think I thought of, I mean, last couple of nights ago, David Halewood was on, on BBC One talking about COVID and how it had affected, disproportionately affected the black populations. Um, David Halewood, everybody know, knows his name because he's been so successful and brought, brought attention and, and celebrity status to Britain. Selena Godden, who's a wonderful activist, poet, author, you know, Andrea Levy. Today is today International Women's Day or is it tomorrow? You know, um, women, Britain is known for its black women who have contributed to to the art scene. So, you know, I think I think we should be celebrating black people in Britain. And many people are, you know. Um, um, Steve McQueen, I mean, how could our art sector survive without the contributions that Steve McQueen has made. And it's brought Britain into the limelight, you know, just, just, just at the Golden Globes a few days ago, you know, there were British artists who were being, being recognized and British black artists amongst them. So, you know, it, it's important. I think we disproportionately contribute. Our contribution is disproportionately big as, as an element of British society. And that is what I'm proud of. Well, I think that's a good place to stop, actually, because that's a really uplifting finish. (laughs) And rightly so. Rightly, you should be proud. This has been fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. If you've enjoyed today's episode of JogPod, you might also enjoy the GA Annual Conference. Taking place online from Thursday the 8th to Saturday the 10th of April this year, the conference gives you access to over 100 lectures and workshops from academics and teachers. There is also a programme of social events, giving you the chance to network with other teachers, alongside an exhibition, so you can discover what's on offer to support you. Prices start at just £50 for the full three-day conference, and student members of the GA can attend for free. Search GA Conference online for more information.